One of the great pictures of the cross in the Old Testament is the serpent on a pole. Those who were bitten were told to look, and they would live. So we turn to Numbers chapter 21, and we read verses 4 through 9, Look, and you will live. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today, and thank you for the the good news of salvation in Jesus. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We by faith look to you, Lord Jesus, because what you did for us on that cross of Calvary is sufficient for our forgiveness and our salvation. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth today, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you are a baseball or basketball player, you know that where you look is very important. You're standing at that free throw line and you're being counted on to make that free throw. You're not looking at the cutest cheerleader on the side, right? You are watching that rim. And when you make that shot, you go like this, right? Silence the crowd. No, you don't need to do that. But you know what I mean. Baseball players, if you're going to hit that ball, if you don't keep your eye on that ball, the only way you're going to hit that ball is by accident, right? You need to focus on that ball. You will never be successful as an athlete until you learn that lesson. God's Word is very clear about the importance of where you look, especially when it comes to our salvation. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. He said, sin and death came into this world through a look, right? Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. That forbidden fruit looked so good. And they took of it and ate. Then he goes on to say, The only deliverance from sin and eternal death is by a look of faith. Then he quotes from Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
The scripture that we look at this morning makes that point abundantly clear. The only way the people of Israel were to be saved from the bite of that fiery serpent was to look at that bronze serpent on the pole. No other way to live once they were bitten. And that is the message that we see so clearly in Scripture. There is only one way to be saved, only one way to be forgiven, only one way to have eternal life, and that is by looking to Jesus. By faith in Him, we receive then that glorious, wonderful gift of salvation, eternal life. There are three reasons why we need to look to Jesus that we see in our text this morning. First of all, we need to look to Jesus because we have rebelled against God's goodness. God had a good plan for His people in taking them out of the bondage of Egypt and leading them into the promised land. But while they were following Him, they didn't like some of what God was doing. The route that God was leading them upon resulted in some complaining. Can you imagine that? Verse 4 says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. You see, the reason why the Israelites didn't like God's plan here is because it included a detour. Who likes detours, huh? When you're on vacation or you're traveling down the road and maybe you want to get to a certain place at a certain time and you see this sign that says detour ahead. How many of you say, wonderful, we get to see something else, some more scenery. I don't think any of us do that, right? We are on a mission, especially men, right? Kids have to go potty. Wait. You know, we're on a mission, we're going to conquer this trip, and all of a sudden, detour ahead. Well, that's what happened to the people of Israel. Instead of going through the land of Edom, God says, we're going to go around the land of Edom, and they became impatient because of the journey. We don't like detours. Detours on the road, or how about detours in life? We want God's plan for us to go smoothly. We don't want any detours because detours slow us down and we don't want to wait for something. And when there's a detour that comes in our life, it is so easy to become impatient. God, what are you doing? Why are you leading me here? What's going on with all of this? I'm sure you've been in the store and witnessed what I have on several occasions where a little child sees something on the shelf and he wants it. Guess when he wants it? Right now, right? And I've heard parents say, wait until Christmas, honey. Wait until your birthday, sweetheart. And that solves it, right? Hardly. I want it now. And you can hear the kid crying throughout the whole store thinking that this is a sanctuary. Mom is not going to punish me here. I can say whatever I want and maybe I'll wear her out. And she'll give me what I want. 
people of Israel didn't want the detour. And so they complained. And there's something else they didn't like. They didn't like God's provision. So here they are traveling through the desert where food was essentially unavailable. And God was so gracious to provide manna for them. And yet, what did they say about God's provision? Verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. That's something. God's gracious provision that was saving their lives. And they said, we can't stand this. This manna, right? No matter how you cook it. Manna burgers. Manna souffle, banana bread, right? No matter how they tried to serve it, it's the same old stuff. We don't like it. So instead of thanking God for graciously providing for them, they complained. And you know what's interesting? They were so upset about the food that they wanted to go back to Egypt. Isn't that crazy? Where you would be so upset about the food that you'd want to go back to bondage in Egypt. They were acting like little children, weren't they? And you read through the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, it went over and over again, on and on again, complaining about the food. You go back to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, it says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this. I have to confess, I can identify with them in this. Because when my mother would be gone for any number of days, like they owned a house that they had inherited from my grandparents, my mom would go up and do some painting and stuff. And dad was the cook then. Guess what he made every time mom was gone? A pot of chili. And we ate it every day of the week. And finally I was saying, you know what, Dad? Um, Maybe we could have something else other than chili. He said, don't you like my chili? Well, I said, I like your chili, but we've had it five days in a row. (laughs) And so I can identify with the people of Israel, just like, okay, what are we going to have today? Let's look at the menu. Oh, it's manna. Well, maybe tomorrow we'll have something different. I guess it's manna again. And so they were complaining We loathe this food. There's nothing to look at except this manna. And what else is interesting is to notice that they were looking back to Egypt and they were saying that we remember the fish which we used to eat free. Doesn't that word strike you a little bit? In Egypt, they were not free. In Egypt, they were in bondage. But they were so upset about the food that they said, let's go back to Egypt. At least the menu 
was a little bit different there. It wasn't free. It was far from free. You know, when our circumstances aren't what we want them to be, isn't it easy to complain? Oh, it's so easy, isn't it? It's, it's our very nature, our sinful nature. When things are not going the way we want them to go, it is so easy to complain. And when we complain, it often leads to blame, right? This is someone's fault. And so we see that in verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food here except this miserable manna. Moses, it's your fault. You're the problem here. And it was Moses who had left Egypt, the palace of Egypt, to to deliver them. It was Moses who risked his life by going to Pharaoh with God's message. It was Moses who just about killed himself day after day trying to solve all of their problems. Moses interceded for them before God when God was ready to destroy him. And that happened not just once, but many times. Moses had given 40 years of his life with chronic grumblers. <laughs> and they're blaming him. Moses, it's, it's your fault. And it's worse than that because not only did they blame Moses, they blamed God. After all that God had done for them, how in the world could they point their finger at him? What had God done for them? He heard their cry in Egypt as they cried in their bondage. He remembered the covenant He had made with Abraham. He set them free from bondage. He led them through the wilderness. He fed them all the way. Their response? Oh, we see it in our text. And we see it over and over again how ungrateful they were. Raymond Brown reminds us that life does not always give us exactly what we want. And for most of us, there are inevitable disappointments. Isn't that true about life? We don't get everything we want. There are things that happen in our lives that bring inevitable disappointment. But when we complain about what God has provided for us, that is really a form of rebellion against Him. We need to see our ungratefulness for what it is. So why do we need to look to Jesus? Because we've rebelled against His goodness. We have not been grateful as we ought. Therefore, we need the forgiveness that God only can provide. Notice, secondly, we need to look to Jesus because we are reproved by God's justice. If there's one thing, one sin, that God repeatedly reproved very firmly in the Old Testament, It was the sin of grumbling, unthankfulness. And the book of Numbers gives us several examples. examples. Numbers 11, verse 1, The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Complaining, and God says, Okay, let me teach you something about how I view that. 
We turn to Numbers 13 and 14. Remember those 12 spies that spied out the land of Canaan? Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, they came back and said, yeah, the cities are fortified, but our God is able. He can give us victory. And the other ten said, oh, no, 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 no. There were giants there in the land. And we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And that's how we viewed ourselves. We were just like little bugs against this huge army. There is no way we could ever do it. And we find then their response to the report, the people of Israel, in Numbers 14.1, And all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better to do what? Go back to Egypt. Let's just go back. The melons and the cucumbers and the onions and the fish. and It would be so much better there. Let's just go back. And they said to one another, let's just get another leader. Let's just get rid of Moses and we'll go back to Egypt. You remember what God did? How he responded to that? Verse 26 of Numbers 14 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I put up with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they're making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb and Joshua. So all of their history, with all of these times when they were chronically grumbling and complaining against God, you would think that they would have finally learned their lesson. But it just seemed like it was over and over and over again. Just back to Egypt. It was so much better then. Boy, they had a bad memory, didn't they? You know, when you're going through hard times, you have a bad memory because the past always looked so wonderful. It was not wonderful. It was not free. For them, it was bondage. So notice what God did in this case. To people where nothing was ever good enough, our text says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, why do you suppose God used serpents here? Was it because they were going through the wilderness and there was a lot of serpents there and they were just, there they were, so we might as well use the serpents? I think it was more than that. For one thing, God used serpents as a reminder of the affliction they had experienced in the land of Egypt. One author says this, that the use of serpents was a sign that was full of meaning to the Israelites. 
Snakes were well-known symbols of power and sovereignty in ancient Egypt as the familiar image of a cobra on Pharaoh's crown reminds us. And then he says, having once been freed from Pharaoh, did they really want to be subject to the power of the serpent all over again? So that author believes that God used those snakes, those serpents, because it reminded them of Egypt. Do you really want to go back there? Is that really what you want? You were in bondage, and yet you want to go back to that? But there's another reason why God used serpents, and that is because the serpent is the symbol of whom? The symbol of our ultimate enemy, of Satan himself. It was in the form of a serpent that Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and when they disobeyed God's command, what was the result? Death. Death came into the world. God had said, the day that you eat from it, what? You will surely These serpents then were a reminder of of what happened with the fall into sin and how the result of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And that is the painful lesson that they needed to learn that day. When you continue to rebel against the gracious goodness of God, complaining about everything in your life, wanting to go back to Egypt, that's the pathway to death. Because it's turning away from the one who loves you and cares for you. Now, did the people of Israel need to experience something as severe as this? Did it need to be serpents that that bit them and, and killed them? Raymond Brown says, Nothing can ward off rebelliousness like unexpected trouble or something people are powerless to handle. The lethal bites of venomous snakes would be more persuasive than all the eloquence of Israel's leaders. Then he says, as they lay on their beds, tossing with fever and feeling their lives ebbing away, they did not find it hard to say, we have sinned. And that's what needed to take place in their lives, right? They needed to come to the place where they recognize their sin. Because if we don't recognize our sin, what's the result? We don't think we need a Savior. And that's why the law of God must be proclaimed. Because we need to know that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because then the gospel, the good news of Jesus becomes also precious, doesn't it? But someone paid the price for that sin. C.S. Lewis said that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The people of Israel needed a megaphone, didn't they? This whole attitude toward God and just chronically grumbling against all that He had done in their lives needed to be stopped. And this was His megaphone. Those serpents brought them to the point where they recognized, we are dying. 
we are dying. And we need the Lord's remedy. Here's the good news. Thirdly, we need to look to Jesus because we are restored by God's mercy. If you look at how the people of Israel responded to God's reproof, it accomplished what God intended. In verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Instead of making excuses for what they had done or claiming that they had a right to grumble. They had a right to be complained. After all, look at what's going on. We have this long journey and all we have is manna. We have a right to be upset. They didn't do that. They said, Moses, we've sinned. Would you intercede for us? And as a picture of Jesus, Moses was an intercessor, wasn't he? Over and over again pleading with God on behalf of people that deserved His judgment. Moses interceded before God and provided a remedy. Just as Jesus interceded on our behalf. We who have sinned, we who deserve to die, Jesus is our intercessor. And His blood shed on the cross is indeed the remedy for our sins. Notice what God's remedy was here. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. Set it on a a pole. Imagine the pole in our building. uh, uh, The bronze serpent there. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to that serpent on that pole, though he was dying, he lived. He lived. Now, there's several things about God's remedy that are important to notice. Notice how God's remedy was visible. It was put up on the pole so that everyone who was bitten could, could see it. It wasn't hidden anywhere. It was there. It was, it was visible. God's remedy was, was simple. They weren't asked to climb to the top of the pole and touch the serpent. Lying there in their sickness, they, they just looked to that serpent on a pole. This remedy was powerful. When anyone looked at the bronze serpent, the text says he lived. He lived. And God's remedy was certainly undeserved, wasn't it? God's mercy to these people. Raymond Brown says here was salvation for sinners. Victims were not healed on the basis of their religious devotion, moral achievement, or spiritual excellence. They were rebels. They were guilty of impatience, anger, unbelief, rebellion, criticism, resentment, and ingratitude. He says they had publicly vilified vilified the God who had blessed them. 
and had flung their criticism in the face of His servant. Yet, here He was, offering them a way of escape. And now in their anguish, these disloyal people were no longer preoccupied with trivialities like food. They had forgotten Egypt's pleasures and the desert's inconveniences. Their present concerns were literally a matter of life and death. Isn't it interesting how it moved from the food to now There's something more serious that we ought to be concerned about now, and that is we could die. These people, like us, did not deserve God's remedy for sin. But is that not what grace and mercy is all about? What is grace? It is God's undeserved favor to us. What is mercy? It is God not giving us what we deserve. And that's what happened here, right? God's mercy and grace was poured out on a rebellious, complaining people. Because God loved them. and provided forgiveness for them. I've often wondered if there were some who had been bitten by those serpents and knew all about the the bronze serpent on the pole, and yet they didn't believe God's remedy would work. Were there some who said, that's too simple. That can't be. What good will that do? Looking at this bronze serpent on a pole, that makes no sense. There's got to be more to being healed than that. I don't know if there were some there, but if they're anything like people today, I can imagine some saying that. This will never work. Are you kidding? Look at this bronze serpent on a pole and you'll live. Oh, how funny. How silly. And that's the mistake that people make today when it comes to salvation. Right? Simply believing that what Jesus did on the cross is going to forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life, there's got to be more to it than that. What does Scripture say? Looking in faith to Jesus is God's remedy. And Jesus made that clear, did He not, in John chapter 3, the passage of Scripture that was read this morning, where you have Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this Jewish leader, who was taught that salvation was achieved, that certain rules and regulations you had to follow or you could not be saved. What did Jesus say? He goes back to this very text of Scripture and He says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What did He mean? On a cross, right? Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Taking my sin, your sin, dying as a substitute 
in my place and in your place, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life. Eternal life is a gift of God. And there isn't anyone among us who can boast. Not one iota. Jesus paid it all, the hymn writer says, right? All to him. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We owe it all to him. As he was lifted up on that cross, carried our sin there. Some have wondered why God asked Moses to make a model of a serpent. And put the serpent up there. When the serpent was the one that that bit them and brought death to them. Ever wondered about that? Why a serpent? Warren Wiersbe asks that question and answers it. He said, but why should Moses make a model of a serpent, the very creature that was causing the people to die? He says, because on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. The very thing that condemns people and bore in his body that which brings spiritual death. I think that's a good answer. Jesus became sin for us. God made him, the scripture says, who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus died the death we deserved. He became sin for us. And when we confess that we have sinned and we look to Him as our only hope of salvation, what's the promise? You will live. You will live. God's Word is simple and powerful. Look and you will live. You will live. In 1829, George Wilson was sentenced to death by a United States court, President Andrew Jackson pardoned him. But the pardon was refused. Wilson insisted that it was not a pardon unless he accepted it. And so the Supreme Court was faced with this question. And Chief Justice John Marshall gave the following decision. And I quote, A pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. But if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. That's a picture of people today who refuse to accept God's pardon. Jesus paid the price. He suffered and died in our place. But if you reject Him, reject the pardon, what's the result? It is eternal death. Reject Him, judgment. Look to Him, 
salvation. That's a simple gospel, isn't it? And that is God's word to us today. Simple and yet powerful. Look and you will live. I trust that's been your response to the good news of salvation, that you recognize you need a Savior. You need Jesus. What he did on that cross is fully sufficient for your salvation. When he died and said, it is finished, there's nothing more you can, could, need to add. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it by the snow. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for us. As you hung on that cross, you were lifted up on that cross to pay the price for our forgiveness. Help us, Lord Jesus, to look to you today by faith, confessing our sin and receiving that wonderful gift of life. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.